Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 32. In this episode, we will be hearing from Stephen Vance as he continues his series with us in the Psalms. This time, we will be considering Psalm 51. The title is Greater Grace for Even More Gigantic Failure. This is part two of this study. This is part two of our study of Psalm 51 that we've called uh, Greater Grace for Even More Gigantic Failure. And we've been looking at this psalm, uh, a psalm of lament, but it's a, it's a personal failure confession uh, sort of lament. And, and we're looking at this because all of us in our lives have, have times when we fail and uh, what then? Last time, uh, we looked at the extreme of emphasizing grace at the expense of human failure. And, and we, we discovered the, the need to face the impact of our, our sin through confession, not to avoid it, but to face it. And to undefensively face the rebellion in our motivation, the brokenness in our being, and the damage from our actions. And we saw that from the three words that David uses about his sin, calling it transgression, rebellion, and uh, guilt, crookedness, and sin, missing the mark. But we noted as well that this psalm is not primarily about sin. It's about, it's about God's grace. And that's where we want to uh, land today and, and extend what we studied before because the other extreme that Christians often fall into is to emphasize sin and failure so much that grace can't be seen and the sinner drowns without any sense of hope. And so I invite you again to look at this psalm with me as we read it together. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. And now we'll continue to this next section we haven't yet studied. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. 
You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. And you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So last time we began by noticing these three amazing words to describe God's uh, love. We saw his, his mercy, his grace is the first word. And then his steadfast love, his loving kindness. And then we saw his tender mercies, his compassion. And God's response to human sin when we bring it undefensively before him and confess the rebellion and the and the, the brokenness and the turning away is to shower us with undeserved, loyal, compassionate love. So not only do we face the impact of our sin through confession, we, we find the impact of grace as we reflect on God's character. And last time we saw the history of these words right from, from Israel at the the calf experience when God forgave them all the way through the tough spots of their experience where they clung to this sense that God, you are the God who forgives, who has steadfast love and compassion and grace. But I want to go farther to discover what happens. How does God's love wash over us? in these confessions. And and there's so many things here. The first thing we learn is that the cleansing the Lord gives is inner. Verse 6 says, you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. This is why it's so important to face the full impact of our sin and our doing and our being and our motivations. Very unpleasant and difficult work that we explored earlier. But but when we do it, that's when the Holy Spirit can help us to be renewed. He can touch every dimension of our being and personality and bring that healing and renewal. Verse 10 says, create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. The Lord doesn't just forgive and put the past behind us. But he gives us a new life. The future beaming before us. I know there may be some who say this sounds too idyllic. And I too know the critical blaming voices. Sometimes from our own selves. Sometimes tragically from Christians. Who keep on pointing the finger when the Father has already forgiven. And the Spirit has already cleansed. In the past, they said words like, the bird with broken wings will never fly as high again. You see, the blame voices only remember the past and see the exterior. They don't move beyond the past and see the inner transformation, but the Lord does. And sometimes we need to just ignore those blaming critics by focusing on the loving Lord and the others who imitate him whose voices spur us on to faithfulness. Sometimes we may even need to have a separation boundary from those blaming critics, as painful and difficult as that is. But never forget, when you've gone here with the Lord, your cleansing is inner. 
But the cleansing is also thorough. It's thorough. Verse 2 says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Wash away all my iniquity. In Exodus 34 that we studied, God forgave Israel for the Sinai's calf experience and he never held them accountable for it again. They'd be held accountable for other unrepented sins, but not for Sinai because their cleansing was thorough. And this is what David was asking for in his confession before the Lord. I remember a dear lady I met years ago and she had been told by her spiritual advisor that she had committed a sin that God would never forgive. In that case, it was divorce. And I still remember when she discovered that word in scripture, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. It's all cleansed. There's forgiveness and renewal for all. And this thorough cleansing in verse 7 is described through a few analogies. He says, cleanse me with hyssop, wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. I'm recording this on a May day, and where I am, there's been a snowstorm. Snowstorm in May, can you believe it? I guess if you're in the north, uh, you can believe it. But you see, you look out and there's this carpet of white, unblemished snow, not yet defiled by pollution or dirt or anything else. And it's an image of the cleansing the Lord brings, whiter than snow. Not just that, purged with hyssop. Hyssop has a rich history in the scriptures. It was what was used in the Passover in Exodus 12. And and so hyssop is linked with redemption freedom as Israel leaves Egypt's bondage. Complete cleansing. It's also used in Leviticus 14. the, The leper, the leper has been outside the company, not in relationship with God's people. And, and now he's cleansed and he's rejoining the community. And hyssop is used in that ceremony. And then as Numbers 19, there's a complicated ceremony, the ashes of the red heifer, and there's a person that's become defiled as they've touched a a dead body or something like that, and and they're anointed with this water mixed with ashes, and, and they're cleansed. And so in Scripture, we see that this hyssop is linked with our our freedom and redemption and our integration into the community of God's people and our cleansing from, from defilement. You see, you're cleansing by the Lord, whatever is in the past. Remember this, your cleansing is inner. Not everyone may see it, but he does. Your cleansing is thorough, whiter than slow, purged with hyssop. But thirdly, your cleansing, because of the love and the grace and the compassion of God, it's truth-based. Scriptures tells us that the cleansing of the conscience comes through the blood of Christ. You're no longer guilty, you're free. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. Hebrews 9, 14, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifies your conscience. But there's more. There's not just the cleansing of the conscience. There's the the cleansing of the heart and the inner self through the water of the Spirit. You're not just no longer guilty. You're, You're a new person indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And you've learned from that failure experience. 
And this cleansing of the water, the the spirit of God within us is described in so many places. Ephesians 5 says about the church that the Lord sanctifies her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.1, Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Your cleansing is inner, it is thorough, but it's also truth-based. What does David say in verse 6? You desire truth in the inner parts, wisdom in the inmost place. And as you've brought your brokenness to the Lord and confessed it with sorrow and experienced the wash of his cleansing, you have learned, or you are learning, It's part of your progress and healing. There's truth and wisdom in the inward parts. But you know, it goes farther than this. The psalm doesn't just have the lament of sadness as the psalmist faces the impact of sin through his confession. And then there's the glorious deliverance, the impact of grace that comes as he reflects on the character of God and sees his inner, thorough, truth-based cleansing, but then he finds a new dimension of living and serving authentically. What does he say? Verse 8, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. And as we put the past behind us, not forgetting the lessons it has taught, but moving forward, forgetting those things that are behind, as Paul says in Philippians 3, we can hear gladness again. Verse 12 says, The joy of your salvation is restored to me. And not just hearing gladness, but experiencing the presence of the Lord. Verse 11 says, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. The psalmist wants to experience the presence of the Lord. Of course, God has promised to be with us always, and the New Testament reminds us of this enduring presence. But is it a felt reality and experience? The psalmist wants to experience the presence of the Lord. But then a key shift takes place in verse 13. The psalmist says, Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. And then verse 14, the psalmist says, my tongue will sing, will sing. And then verse 15, open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. Not only has he been cleansed and renewed within, and not only is he experiencing the gladness and presence of the Lord, but now he can respond. Now the confession prayer in verses 1 to 12 is turning into a vow. What am I going to do going forward now that I am restored? And what will you do? You see, David's teaching and singing, and praising is all shaped by his experience of failure and recovery. This psalm gives us an example. He lays it out in the open before God and before all of God's people. It's incorporated into the psalms. 
The shadowy context is not hidden, but the reality of God's grace is superimposed upon it. And now he's able to teach and to sing and to praise. New Testament brings these ideas together as well. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. You know, this psalm, as we apply it, reminds us that there is a special ministry for people who have faced their failure. And they've gone the next step of becoming willing to be vulnerable about it. Not to keep it secret, but to show God's grace in it. Many people, because of shame, just keep their recovery from failure secret. But not David, as we've seen. Not the Apostle Paul, who in 1 Timothy 1 says, I, I'm the chief of sinners, but I obtain mercy. And what about you and me? As you heal from your failure, God may open up something even more amazing than you can have imagined. This is the way for authentic ministry, whether it's teaching or singing or praising, to be honest and vulnerable about our struggles in a way that helps others find hope and healing and recovery. I have found that the messages I've given in full-time ministry that have been most blessed by the Lord are those that are born out of my life experience. A struggle with depression and how God led me to joy. A struggle with bitterness and how God led me to peace. Some people will be frightened by this. The other option is to come and do your ministry, your religion, without vulnerability about your weakness. But the message of this psalm is that God isn't likely to be too impressed with that. Take a look at verse 16. He says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. This verse represents a line of thinking reflected often in the Old Testament and that climaxes in the New Testament. That the, the sacrifices, the physical sacrifices, were just reminders of the need for the grace from the Lord. Unfortunately, God's people sometimes obsessed on the sacrifices and forgot the meaning of God's grace and love and compassion behind them. And they became hypocritical and superficial in their worship. And the scriptures severely criticized this hypocrisy and this inauthenticity. For example, in 760 BC, Amos, one of the early prophets, records God's words as he critiques his people. He says, I hate your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. You see, he's saying, I don't want hypocritical, unvulnerable worship. I don't want that outer stuff. I want your heart. David will say it here. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. His heart had been broken, but he confessed and repaired. And now that experience becomes part of the tapestry of his life that illustrates 
the compassion and the steadfast love and the grace of the Lord that he had clung to in this moment. But not just Amos. A few years later, Hosea will say in 6 and 6, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. Isaiah, in the same time period and a little later, in chapter 1, verse 10 to 17, says, What is, to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams. He didn't want their sacrifices. He wanted their heart. A little later, Micah will say the same thing. What are you going to bring before the Lord? Chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Micah answers his question. Here's what the Lord wants. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. And of course, Jesus finished this off in Matthew 9 when he said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. God became sick all through history and culminating in the life of Jesus. He was sick with mere external religion. The sacrifices were necessary not because God needed them, but because humans needed them as reminders of the love and the grace and the mercy of God. So David, in his experience, says, I'm going to give you my broken heart, Lord. It's all that I can give because I've failed and I have been broken. If I'm going to be authentic, I'll just give you what I have. My broken heart, not the external sacrifices that fake it. So have hope in whatever your failure is. While you might never have wanted that dark experience, that failure time, God can use it. God can redeem it. So have hope to confess to him. Experience his cleansing and then his recommissioning to teach, to sing, to praise. This is the broken spirit that God does not despise. Let me give you an example of this. I was moved recently to hear Rick Warren uh, speak uh, online, and he, he talked about a ministry in their church called Celebrate Recovery. It's a group of people who support one another as they recover from addiction, particularly sexual addiction, sort of similar to the secular version for alcoholics, the AA, but it's a very biblically driven program. And here's the comment he made, because these are vulnerable people that have failed, and yet they're recovering. And he says, you know, in their weekly sermons, they frequently feature testimony stories as part of the teaching to show how lives have been changed by the power of the word and the gospel. The gospel works. What I found most interesting was that he, he said most of their testimonies come from the CR ministry. People who have faced their failure and experienced God's forgiveness and cleansing and through that process of transition to new ways of being and doing, not perfect, but being transformed, and then most powerfully and vulnerably, they're willing to share their story, to give hope and healing to others. That's what David was doing in Psalm 51. I wonder what my Psalm 51 should look like, or yours.
Because remember, this is God's amazing grace for a failing people. Greater grace for even more gigantic failure, whether David's or yours or mine. Remember, in your failure, avoid the two extremes. Of course, don't emphasize grace at the expense of human failure. As we studied last time, face the impact of your sin through confession. Write your own psalm of lament and confession. Undefensively face the rebellion in your motivation, the brokenness in your being, and the damage from your actions. But don't stop there. This confession psalm is not about sin. It's about grace. And we saw the three words. God is compassionate and steadfast in his love and gracious. So don't emphasize sin and failure at the expense of grace. Reflect on God's gracious, loyal, compassionate character and discover God's inner and thorough cleansing. But don't stop there either. This confession psalm starts with grace, but ends with recommissioning. You find your new dimension of authentic living and serving that incorporates God's grace for your brokenness and failure. May this be your prayer, David's prayer. Lord, the sacrifices of God are not a perfect spirit, but a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Last time I closed with the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his Cost of Discipleship, but I want to quote them again and expand on them. What he says is so valuable. He talks about those that emphasize grace at the expense of human failure. He calls it cheap grace. The preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Grace without discipleship. Grace without cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That's not what we want. We want to face our sin and through it to see God's grace and mercy and love. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer continues. He says, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to... Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. So wherever you're at, hear these words. And bring your sadness and your failure to the Lord and find his grace. And listen to these words. Such grace is costly, Dietrich says, because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly but it, because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. 
You were bought with a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace, because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. May each one of us experience the grace, the steadfast love, and the compassion of the Lord, knowing that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Child of God, bring it to him. Let him renew you and start fresh.